This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. I wanted to bring Sally's story into some spotlight because understanding what she went through could help other girls and women understand what traumas they might have experienced or might be privy to. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. It doesn't necessarily come in the box of a stranger leaps out and violently assaults you or violently murders you, that there can be a lot of psychological coercion, coercive control. Sarah Wyman is a fantastic writer and author in New York City. She's also the crime columnist for the New York Times Book Review, and she's known as the crime lady because of her famous blog. I would call Sarah Weinman an influencer in the world of crime writing. And Sarah wrote a true crime book called The Real Lolita. And in it, she looks into the mind of the man who wrote Lolita. The book was written in 1955, and it was really, really controversial. So in her book, Sarah explores how the author of Lolita found the story, because it was based on a true story, the kidnapping of Sally Horner. There's a lot to unpack about this. Before The Real Lolita was a book, The Real Lolita was a standalone feature. It really was a case of sort of the fall to late near winter of 2013. I had just finished doing heavy reporting and research and interviews for a piece published by the New York Times Magazine about a man who was serving a life sentence for murder who had won a private detective novel contest. And that piece and really most of whatever I have published that are feature stories tend to be where crime intersects with culture. Because what I found is that even though I've long been fascinated by true crime and real life cases, I find that the stories that I'm most interested in, most get obsessed with, have some extra element that links it to either the society at large or the culture as a whole that I feel like it's not that it's not enough that it has to be, say, a murder mystery or a whodunit or someone who goes missing and they haven't found the body But it just feels like, what does this story also say about something else? Or what's happening now, how we can relate to it now. I'm also very drawn to stories of the mid-20th century. We are at the bounds of memory where people who have direct either testimony or, or were witnesses or were actually involved are still alive, but perhaps not for much longer. And so as a result, it really feels like I'm trying to chase at something before it goes away. Doing so, it feels like I'm trying to revive overlooked stories or put people who have been needlessly forgotten back into some kind of spotlight. So all of which to say is these were all of sort of the larger background things as to what led me to the kidnapping of Sally Horner. 
So Sally Horner was nearly 11 years old in March of 1948 in Camden, New Jersey, which is just over the river from Philadelphia. And back then, Camden was a working class town. It had still robust manufacturing. RCA Victor was there. Campbell Soup was there and is nominally still there. There were shipbuilding through the war. But it was just about the time when the decline was going to set in and ultimately become a sort of permanent state of being for the city. But no one knew that yet. So Sally was growing up in a poor working class household, single mother who had trouble keeping work. She had an older half-sister who was pregnant with her first child, having just gotten married and working in a greenhouse with her husband. There was a lot going on. And so Sally at school really wanted to join this girls' club. And as part of the initiation rite, she was supposed to go to the nearest five and dime, probably Woolworths, and steal a notebook, a five-cent notebook. Wait, what? So it's sort of like a fun gang kind of thing? or Yeah, I suppose so. Like, she just, she was lonely. She wanted friends. This yeah. is a way to get in with, with a peer group. Yeah. She went to the five and dime, and she was just about to take the notebook, and a hand caught her arm. And it turned out to be this man who called himself Frank Warner. He used many, many different aliases. I once did a list, and I think I was north of 20. Wow. The na- so the name that he was most known by was Frank LaSalle. And it probably wasn't his real name, but it, he used it enough that I feel like that was a consensus name. In any case, he catches her on the arm, and he tells her, I'm an FBI agent, you're under arrest. He was not an FBI agent. She was definitely not under arrest. He had only been released from prison two months before for the statutory rape of five girls between the ages of 12 and 14. Wow. So he was a real opportunistic criminal. He had also done time for drunkenness, bootlegging, car theft, all sorts of stuff all around the Midwest and somehow landing in Philadelphia. So kind of from the beginning, he had this sort of life of crime? Yeah, he was a shady character pretty much his whole life. So this happens... And he tells her, I'm going to let you go, but if you, I'll be watching your every move. You have to report to me because otherwise you'll go to the reformatory. So he lets her go. Some time passes. And now it's June of 1948. She's now properly 11. It's getting ever closer to the birth of her niece. And as she comes home from school, LaSalle catches her again. And now he ups the ante and says, if you don't do what I say, you'll definitely be going to the reformatory. So you now have to tell your mother this story. And the story that she told... And it was backed up when he called the house was she was going to go away to Atlantic City for a few days. And he was the father of several school friends. And the reason her mother, Ella, let her go is because Ella was really close to having the electricity turned off. She was in and out of work. She knew that she couldn't afford to give her daughter even a semblance of a vacation. So even if it sounded too good to be true, it still seemed better than the alternative. And did he, did Frank know that? Did he know what Sally's family situation was? I mean, how did he know that story would work? That's an excellent question. I don't know that for sure because, and this is just a function of how much you can spin a narrative from the sources that you rely on. So because I was relying heavily on news reports and to a lesser extent, whatever court documents I could dig up. And this was an issue because a lot of them were lost. Or they were buried in FBI files that I didn't get until after the book published. Oh, no. Which then- Isn't that cr- always the way? <laughs> always, always. <laughs> that meant I could write an afterward to the paperback edition. But 
at the time that I was initially researching it in 2013, 2014, less so. There's a lot that I don't know in terms of state of mind, but there's a lot, obviously, that I can infer. Since the book has been published, a number of people have asked me, how could Ella do such a thing, let her daughter go off with a stranger? And I always say we can't define her actions by well, then 2018 to 2020 attitudes, we have to think about what life was like back in 1948. Yeah. And there was a, a degree of permissiveness about letting your kids go off places and not worrying about them. So she does let Sally go. She sees her off at the bus station. She sees the shadowy figure sitting next to her daughter. And what was supposed to be a week turns into two weeks, then three weeks, then six weeks. She is getting phone calls. She is getting uh, letters. From Sally. Yeah. Or reportedly from Sally. Okay, so she's alive. Oh, yeah, yeah. But about six weeks in, Ella gets a letter and a phone call saying they're going to Baltimore and Sally's not going to write or call anymore. And that's when she finally realizes this wasn't fully a case of a girl willingly going off with someone. Something sinister is quite afoot. So she goes to the police. What's the reaction from the cops? They take it fairly seriously. And in fact, I would say the local police really did quite well. There was one detective in particular, a man named Marshall Thompson, who was on it full time pretty much from the get-go. At first there were several, and then he was the only one. So he would travel to all places in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, following whatever leads he could. Part of the problem, which I didn't learn until I got LaSalle's FBI file two weeks before pub... (laughs) (laughs) is that the FBI was called in, but they closed the the case really early. I think if Ella reported Sally missing in August of 1948, by October 48, it was no longer open. Hmm. And this was a kidnapping where they were pretty sure she had been taken across state lines, but they're just like, ah, we don't have any proof and she can come home willingly. It was just, there was one note later in the file, an agent after everything was over is reading through it and you can tell how shocked he was that it was closed so early. And he writes, this really was bad. Oh, boy. Which was just... Which is a condemnation of the FBI, obviously. Absolutely. Okay. And the fact that here were these male FBI agents who didn't believe a woman and didn't believe that a girl could be kidnapped under these circumstances. Ella is thinking the worst, I'm assuming, from what you can gather. Oh, sure. Or just not even knowing what to think. Like, she just knows that her daughter is gone, doesn't know where she is, could be anywhere in the country, could be anywhere in the world. She... At one point in Christmas of 1948, gives some quotes to the local paper. And I think the headline was, a tree glows, a mother waits. Mm. So she had a Christmas tree up in the window so that if Sally came home, she would see that the house was still there and she was still doing Christmas and that she had kept Sally's room pretty much the way that it was when she was taken. So all this is happening. And by this point, Sally's in Baltimore. So she had been in Atlantic City and then they go to Baltimore where under an assumed name, she registers to go to school at a Catholic school. Why send her to school? Because it would be suspicious if she weren't in school, I guess. Probably. Is is school compulsory at that point? Probably you didn't have the same thing of homeschooling that you would now. So I think it would have looked weird, especially because the idea is that she is supposed to be posing as Frank's daughter. So if she isn't enrolled in school, it would create more red flags. So boy, what a big risk he's taking by letting her be around other students. And we'll talk about what ultimately happens. He at this point has her. So let's switch from the point of view from Ella, her mother, to Sally traveling with this man. What is their actual relationship like? 
Certainly in Baltimore, and I would say with great probability in Atlantic City that uh, he was raping her. This was not a consensual relationship, obviously, because she was 11 and he was around 50. And he had this prior record of raping young girls. And so as a result, there's a facade where they seem like a father and daughter and very affectionate and people have no idea that anything is amiss. And privately, there's this terrible thing going on. And of course, there's all untold psychological manipulation because this is what will come up later and even now, which is how could a girl be considered kidnapped if she's not tied up, if she's not shackled? But there's so much you can do psychologically and mentally that in many ways can create even more trauma and more lasting damage than being physically bound. So the level of manipulation, him telling her that her family no longer loved her, they wouldn't miss her, are all things that would create such an enormous impression upon an 11-year-old girl. I mean, that just goes without saying. Yeah, and I imagine that he was justifying the sex somehow. There's no written record that says it because when he was asked if later by police if there was a sexual relationship, he would deny it. He kept saying that she was in fact his daughter. No proof whatsoever. There was no indication that he ever even knew Ella Horner prior to meeting Sally at the Five and Dime. He was a fabulist. And, but he would continue on with this fabulism really until the end of his life. So they spend a number of months in Baltimore. And then in early 1949, probably around March, they're on the move. And my theory is that it more or less tracks with when the Camden County prosecutor, Mitchell Cohen, charged LaSalle with additional crimes. So he had already been uh, charged with abduction and now kidnapping was added. It had a much more serious prison sentence of 30 to 35 years. So my theory is that he learned of this and realized that he and Sally had to leave the East Coast. So they travel to Dallas. Dallas, Texas had a group of trailer parks right around Commerce Street, Mm -hmm. which now if you go there, it's the expressway. Because I went looking to see if there was any remnant of that trailer park, but there was nothing. So it was near, and it was not that far from Oak Cliff. So there's a community in this trailer park and there are a number of neighbors. And again, they have no idea what the true nature of Sally and LaSalle's relationship is. And so they're there from March, April of 1949 to early 1950. So at this point, it's... Is it six months into this? Um, nearly than, a year. Nearly a year into yeah. it. Okay. So they now move to Dallas. He's on the move. How is he supporting them? Odd jobs, fixing cars, being a mechanic, whatever brings in money. I think at one point he did enter into some kind of partnership with another resident of the trailer park, but it's all very temporary and disconnected. And the reason I know this is because one of the Dallas trailer park neighbors, a woman named Ruth Janish, who with her husband, George, had many, many children. And they themselves were itinerant travelers. They would go from Washington State to Minnesota, to Dallas, to California, and then do the loop all over again. Hers was also a really rough, hard scrabble life. There was all manner of cycles of abuse that she experienced that unfortunately perpetuated on her own children. But she also got a sense that something was very, very wrong with the relationship between Sally and LaSalle. She could see something that no one else could or at least no one was admitting to. What was her sense? That it was just not right? It was just like not right, not natural. Something was off. Did she do something about it? She did something that was really quite remarkable. (laughs) 
And as I say in the book, and also speaking with some of her daughters about this, that they view what Ruth did with respect to Sally as the one decent thing she did in her life. And she never wanted people to forget it. And it didn't necessarily make up for all the trauma that she allowed or perpetuated, but it helped to, again, put things in some larger context in terms of understanding her own personality. She realizes that something is amiss, but she and her family are about to move to San Jose because her husband can find work there that he's not currently finding in Dallas. So they land in San Jose again, and then she writes LaSalle and says, there's work to be had here, why don't you come? LaSalle takes her up on it, and he packs up the car and the trailer, and he and Sally move from Dallas to San Jose. So we're now into March of 1950. She had also been enrolled at a Catholic school in Dallas, so he takes her out, and they're on the road for a while. And then they finally land in San Jose, hitch up the trailer, the car breaks down, so he has to take the bus into the city limits of San Jose to look for work. And Ruth seizes her chance. So she invites Sally over and they, you know, they know each other from Dallas. And she finally says, is there something you want to tell me? And at first Sally's reluctant, but then finally she breaks down and said, yeah, he's not really my father. And there's this terrible thing happening and I miss my mom. Mm. She lets Sally and shows her how to make a long distance phone call. So first Sally calls her mother, but the phone's been disconnected because Ella's out of work again and the electricity's turned off and the phone is off. So she can't get through. So she calls her sister, Susan, at the greenhouse And Susan doesn't pick up, but her brother-in-law, Al Panaro, picks up. And that's when Sally says, it's me, sent for the FBI, but I'm alive and I want to come home. So Al acts quickly and eventually police will descend upon the trailer park and they'll get to LaSalle just as he's getting off the bus and they arrest him. And at first he tries to say that he is in fact Sally's father, but his story breaks down in a series of inconsistencies. At first it looks like there might be some protracted trial and Sally might have to testify and she's understandably really upset about this. But LaSalle decides to plead guilty to spare publicity for the kid, for Sally. And so he gets 30 to 35 years in prison. So this is 1950. He eventually dies in prison in 1966 at roughly the age of 70, give or take a few years. And so this is what's interesting is that the Camden County prosecutor, Mitchell Cohen, he had advised Sally and Ella that they might be better off leaving Camden changing their names, making a new life, breaking with the past. What is the media like? Is this national story splashed all over? Is this more local? Is it sensationalized? What's it like? I was surprised at how widely it traveled. I was finding wire stories in Australia and New Zealand in other languages. Like with so many cases, the local coverage was the most comprehensive and I found to be the most sympathetic Once it got on the wires, that's when a lot of inflammatory language would seep in, talking about her body appearance as husky or plump, talking about how they had sex. Very different than rape or molestation. Yeah. A lot of misogynistic things happening throughout this whole... Yeah, although less than I think I had bargained for. And that's in part because... I'm thinking of the Camden Evening Courier and the Courier Post, which was the local papers. So on the day that she was found and rescued, they have a front page story with her witness statement to the sheriff in San Jose. So it's essentially like a first person as told to, which was gold for me because it was the first instance where I had Sally's voice. Like there wasn't a diary. I would ask whatever sources I could find if they remembered how her voice sounded and they couldn't tell me because so much time had passed. So this was just my first sense of how 
she might have spoken. And of course, she was 13 by then, and it was still very much this incredibly fraught, stressful, anxious series of statements. And just the fact that at one point, the sheriff asked had she had sex with Frank LaSalle, and at first she denied it because it was shameful to talk about, but then he gently coaxed and just said, you know, we need you to tell us because you're safe now, etc. And so she finally broke down and told what happened. But that's why the line of, I want to go home as soon as I can, it just that just really got at me because it's the most primal thing in the world. A, a little girl wants to go home yeah, and she's been denied that chance for 21 months. So I think that also contributed to why Sally and Ella did not leave Camden. And not only did they not leave Camden, they went back to the house and she went back to the same school that she had been in when she was taken. Is that a needing a sense of normalcy or like a stronger foundation or something? It's hard to know. I just feel like that's what they knew. Yeah. I mean, what else are you going to do if you're it, a single mom? You if know? you're a single mom, what other options do you have? It was, And the thought of getting Sally into therapy was unfathomable. You just didn't do that then. The idea was something bad happened, you buried it and hoped that people would forget it. But people didn't forget. And the greater issue was they didn't view Sally as someone who had suffered terrible trauma and had been repeatedly raped. They viewed her as a girl who had willingly given up her virginity <sighs> to an older man. So she was harassed at school. She didn't really have friends. So she's already here was this girl predisposed to being solitary and she was really isolated. And it wasn't until she met a girl named Carol Starts and they formed a very deep friendship in the last year of Sally's life. So again, my instinct is to say, what the hell was Ella thinking? Not getting her kid out, especially if she's bullied. But we do have to go back to that time period, which is after World War II and, you know, instability and, and a single mom. So it's, it's still a little mind boggling that after everything she went through, she continued to go through bad things. I think also from what I know of Ella is that she was not always making the best choices in her life. This was someone who claimed that she was a widow, but I could not find any documentation that she'd ever been married. So that meant she probably had two children out of wedlock. Definitely was a little bit sketchy about the parentage of her first daughter, Susan. The best guess I have is that she took up with someone who was married, who had family, and this became understandably very complicated and fraught. And with Sally, she took up with a man named Russell Horner. He had been married. He had been widowed. He'd been married again, and he had a son. So it's just that what what she liked to tell people and what was actually happening were often at odds with one another. And I'm sure shame had a lot to do with it or just all sorts of things that I don't think it's fair for me to fully speculate on. What was the media's reaction to Ella Horner? I mean, did they have one? Not really. They just viewed her as her mother. And it's especially apparent when Sally flies home from California to Philadelphia, because of course, there's no airport in Camden, so you fly into Philly and all the photographers are there. And there's this one photo when Ella and Sally finally see each other for the first time in 21 months. Sally runs down the stairs from the plane. Ella runs, rushes towards her. The plane was delayed. So there was extra stress and pressure. They finally embrace. And just to see they're both crying, Sally's held in her mother's arms. All of that is there. There's just so much emotion pent up. 
Because also by that point, Sally's niece has not only been born, but she's closing in on nearly two years old. So she's finally meeting Diana, her niece, for the first time. And she says, gee, she looks an awful lot like me when I was a baby. So there's two years almost lost. And you can't get that back. It's just impossible. And and there's no way that you can ever recover those lost years. Now you were getting back to the one friend, Carol, is that right? So this is happening when she's about 14, she meets this girl? Yeah, so they meet in homeroom. And Carol was much more street smart. She was like one of 10 kids. She had no illusions about life. And she just thought Sally was a lovely girl, very bookish, very heartfelt. And they just bonded. When I finally tracked her down and it took, quite a while to find her. Wow, you tracked her down? I did. It's amazing. And she has since passed away, but I did have two pretty substantive telephone conversations with her. And she was a delight to talk to. (laughs) But mostly I could just sense even over the phone how much Sally meant to her. And she described how Sally taught her how to be a lady, how to eat food with a fork properly. Then it also struck me, well, how would Sally have learned that? Would she have learned it at home with Ella or did she learn it on the road? Yeah. So everything becomes, it carries extra weight because here is a girl growing up on the road because you have to grow up, but she's also growing up far too fast and learning things that frankly no girl should be learning at that age. Did Sally and Carol ever talk about what happened with Frank? To some degree, but mostly it was a no-go zone for understandable reasons. It was just, it was of tremendous pain. And it was something that was used against Sally. So why would she want to talk about it? But she did emote and she did confess to loneliness and she wondered if it would affect any chances of having a boyfriend. And she just felt sad about that, but it was hard to know. Which also I think explains when in the summer of 1952, by which point Carol and Sally are both 15 years old. And having seen photos, Sally at 15 looks quite grown up. She's taller. Part of it was the style in 1952 of how what clothes they wore and how they did their hair. But she really, I'm looking at photos and she looks like she's in her early 20s already. Wow. Whereas when she was kidnapped at 11, she looked 11. So it really is incredible and also quite sad to behold the changes in her. But they decide after working summer jobs as waitresses to spend a weekend at a resort town in Southern New Jersey called Wildwood in August of 1952. So they take the bus together and they're out dancing and they're in with other groups of people that they may know or know a little bit. And then Sally meets a boy named Edward Baker. He has a car. He's a little bit older. He's definitely very cute. He's like shock of dark brown hair. He was popular in his high school. He works in... Uh, some kind of manufacturing plant and he's definitely interested in her and she's interested in him and they go out for walks on the boardwalk. So this could be the start of something really yeah. sweet for her, which she deserves exactly. after all this time. Maybe in hindsight, the fact that she's 15 and he's 20 is a little bit, the age difference is a little much, but she didn't tell him that she was 15. She told him that she was 17 mm, because they were go. using fake IDs in general. Yeah. So she just stuck to it. So he thought that she was 17. So they're spending time together. He claims that it never got beyond kissing, if that. I'm not so sure. But again, I only have the written record to go by. But she makes a fateful decision that instead of going back on the bus with Carol, she's going to accept a ride home with Ed Baker. And it's late at night on August 18th of 1952, just after midnight, and there's a four-car accident. He survives, but Sally does not. And so her life ends at 15. 
he plows in the back of a of a truck and then it carons into another car. So it's just like this cascade. And Sally is killed instantly and every other person is injured to some degree. Baker also suffers some injuries. I believe that he has chest injuries and breaks a leg, but they're survivable. And he's actually arrested for the equivalent of vehicular homicide, but the charges will eventually be dropped because it's pretty clear that it was an accident, just a horrible, horrible accident. So Sally Horner dies at 15. Yeah. And her brother-in-law has to identify the body because Ella's too distraught to do it. So he goes down to Wildwood and does the ID and then they have the funeral and several hundred people come. And in sort of the most appalling piece of news, LaSalle learns of Sally's death and sends flowers. Gross. Which were not displayed, obviously. What now is the media perception of her upon news of her death? Is it reported? Oh, yeah. It's reported. And it's mostly just girl who survived kidnapping is killed in a car accident. Especially in the local papers, they do take note of how cruel and unfair it is that she died so soon after coming home. But mostly it's just reported as a straight news story. And the wires pick it up. And it's one of those wire stories that the novelist Vladimir Nabokov reads. And the first real tie was a line late in the novel when Humbert Humbert, who is, of course, the famously unreliable narrator who has this predilection towards prepubescent girls, in particular one named Dolores Hayes, who he nicknames Lolita. Sometimes she's Dolly, sometimes she's other names. I tended to think of her as Dolores to always remember that she was at least a fictional person. So late in the novel, there comes a point when he is back sort of at the scene of the crime in a matter of speaking. And there's a parenthetical which reads, had I done to Dolly or Dolores Hayes, had I done to her what Frank LaSalle, a 50-year-old mechanic, had done to Sally Horner in 1948. And the thing with Lolita, I don't know if you've read the novel. I have not. So it had been many years since I had read it. I read it at 16, which was perhaps a little bit too young to read it. But Subsequently, I've learned of quite a number of women who read it in their teens or even as young as 12. Wow. Because it's viewed as this controversial novel, this like illicit novel that's supposed to clue you in on various things that seem outside the bounds of whatever young adult life you're leading. For me, it was almost like a dare. There's so much going on. It's written in such a way where the language is ever-present and sort of supersedes anything. But you're also sucked into the narrative, into Humbert Humbert's voice. It's really easy to miss stuff. So that parenthetical, I definitely did not catch the first time. And I definitely had no sense that it was referring to a real-life case and a real-life girl. And so after reading through this essay and thinking about it a little bit, I was like, I wonder if anyone's written sort of a narrative feature on this case. Quickly, The Sally Horner The case. Sally Horner story, yes. He learned of the case at critical points while he was writing Lolita. So, and by this point, it's pretty likely that he has some familiarity with the Horner case just because in back in 1950, there was such a torrent of media coverage. But Inter- it, in international media, yeah. as you said, too. Well, by this point, Nabokov is at Cornell University, so he's probably reading it in the New York Times or the local paper. But in 52, he's on the road because he and his wife Vera and sometimes their son Dimitri would spend the summers hunting butterflies. 
And he didn't drive. So it was usually Vera or Dimitri, or sometimes they would pay a grad student to be their driver and they would just follow various routes. And so when Sally's death was reported, he read a wire story a couple of days later, he would have been in Wyoming. And it's at a point where he's been working on the manuscript that would become Lolita for four or five years, struggling with it. But in the next year and a half, he is seized with inspiration and he works on it with real feverish intent. And by December of 1953, the manuscript is done. And it includes that parenthetical that I mentioned at the top of the conversation. Which is a direct reference yes. to a real news story. Maybe it took this sort of real life event to click with him, how to fill in the blanks or how to make connections in this fictional story. Yeah, I think he viewed Sally's ordeal as solving some structural problem and also taking certain details, even just from her appearance or the fact that LaSalle was sentenced to 30 to 35 years in prison, the fact that he was initially charged under the Mann Act, which was about transporting sex workers across state lines. So there are all these like little details, but also just the fact that she had been on a cross-country road trip and Lolita and Humbert Humbert go on a cross-country road trip, which is a lot more elaborate Byzantine and frankly, if you actually map it, as some people have, it doesn't really make sense because they sort of like double back and go, it, it just, it doesn't really fit. Whereas going from Camden to Atlantic City to Baltimore to Dallas to San Jose, yeah. it's a little more linear. Making a little thing there. Yeah. The biggest clue that I had about how one can infer the Nabokov's intention with respect to Lolita was a diary entry that Vera made So he kept diaries, but she sort of took it over in the run-up to the American publication of Lolita, in part because I think they sensed that their lives were about to change. When the book became such a success and went to the top of the New York Times bestseller list, they earned so much money that he could finally quit his teaching job at Cornell and they moved to Montreux, Switzerland, and lived in this swanky hotel for the rest of his life. And she stayed there until the rest of her life too. So he died in 77, Vera died in 91. So to backtrack, she does this diary entry upon seeing the critical reception that comes in within the first few weeks. And she notes something to the effect of, I wish more people understood that the key to this novel is this poor misunderstood girl and essentially that she is the true heroine of this story. And he always said that Lolita was one of his very favorite characters to write and he also viewed her as a true heroine. And that's the thing is like, if you look underneath the surface of this unreliable narration that is very easy to get seduced by, it is essentially novelist seduction, peer underneath and here is this much more horrible awful story of a girl repeatedly violated who still manages to overcome it. Let me give you the two references I know from Lolita. One is the Long Island Lolita, Amy Fisher. That is how I think most people probably know that phrase. And the other is Sting's Don't Don't Stand stand Too Close to Me. He says it differently than you do. So depending on where you're from, you pronounce his name differently. And he actually did a whole pronunciation guide to his own name. (laughs) Okay. It, the closest approximation is Nabokov. Nabokov. Talk about the controversy about just the novel in general. Sure. And just to sort of go back to your point about how the term Lolita has been used, that's part of the controversy. It's I view Lolita, aside from even after all the years of research that led to making this book, I still view it as one of the greatest novels ever written in the 20th century. Because the fact that he could create and elicit such sympathy from the reader for such a monstrous character 
is such a feat of novelistic intention and language. But all the clues are there for all of the horror that Humbert Humbert perpetuates upon Dolores Hayes. Like the fact that in the initial scene where they have sex or where he rapes her, he paints it as she turned to him and she wanted it and that she had had this prior sexual experience. And yet it's also clear that Nabokov wants us to remember we only have Humbert Humbert's word, that this novel is being conveyed in the form of a memoir, like a fake memoir. Yeah, the unreliable narrator. Exactly. So anything that he's telling us, we should distrust. And the fact that even underneath these layers of self-aggrandization and wanting to put himself at the center of the narrative, we still sense the pain and the horror that she is experiencing just speaks to what is actually going on here. And so... The fact also that he is the one who nicknamed her Lolita. She doesn't call herself Lolita. So the fact that subsequent to the book's publication, the film adaptations, the Broadway musical, the failed Broadway musical, (laughs) various other... The Amy Fisher case is what... Well, and Amy Fisher is actually a a really good comparison because here was also someone who suffered a lot of trauma as a kid. I think she was really looking for love in the worst possible places. So to be called the Long Island Lolita is a profound misunderstanding of not only what happened to her, but what the novel was all about. I think of a young girl who seduces, quote unquote, an older man in that way. So what is seduction, right? right? I mean, Amy Fisher was, I hate it when true crime people talk about women and their looks, but she was an attractive young woman. She eventually shoots her boyfriend, Joey Botafuco's wife. Wife. Yeah, That connotation is there of can a, a young woman seduce in the 1940s Girls were given so much more responsibility. Mm-hmm. What was the consent to marry at that? In that I time? mean, it depended. It depended state by state. Yeah. obviously. The thing with her too is that yes, she was fifteen, sixteen, and I think had had some prior sexual experience. But it still comes down to there was some degree of power differential, yeah. and that's always what it comes down to. Yeah, she may have desires. Lots of. High school age girls have desires, Mm -hmm. but it really is incumbent upon the men to not act on them, especially if there is a a power differential. Let's say that they're a teacher or someone in law enforcement and the like, like you should not be abusing power. And in the case of, in this fictional case, like Humbert Humbert was essentially her her stepfather. That is a gross abuse of power. (laughs) Putting all the onus on on the girl, that's part of the problem here. And that's what we saw in some part with Sally Horner. Mm -hmm. There are, to me, I don't know if you agree with this or not, there are some true crime stories that need to be told specifically by a woman. I think this is probably one of those. What is it that we take away from this? Sally Horner being a person, what does that mean in terms of how we read Lolita? I don't think that her story supersedes Lolita, but I just want her story to be always alongside so that they're essentially in permanent conversation with one another. And that if Sally matters, then all the other people, girls, women, anyone who identifies as female, they matter too. If my book helps people uncouple the idea that Lolita is synonymous with seductress, I've done my job. On the next episode of Wicked Words. This was not just a murder. This was not just a shooting. This was something that investigators who visited the crime scene, investigators who looked at the evidence here, saw as something being remarkably personal, remarkably brutal, um, the type of killing that is meant to send a message.
If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 